I'm not as fast as I thought I was. <laughs> well, hey, um, we're, we're going to start a little bit different today. I don't have any goat stories that tie into the message today, uh, so instead I called a friend. And uh, this is my friend Andrew, and uh, he's a football coach at, uh, for one of the football programs here. I'm not going to say which school, but it's one of the football programs in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Go Blue. Go Blue. And uh, he's been here about three years now. And Andrew, can you just tell us a little bit about what it was like when you came in three years ago and started working with your team? Yeah, I don't coach at uh, University of Michigan. I came in three years ago as the offense coordinator at Concordia University. And really, I knew, uh, I knew two things coming in. Uh, one, I knew that I wanted to create like an identity and a culture around an idea of family um, and like loving each other and sacrificing each um, yourself for each other uh, within our offense. Um, and two, I knew we were, I knew the defense was really good and the offense was really, really bad. Uh, I didn't know that the offense averaged 21 inches per rushing attempt, which was basically last in the nation. So we were, we were way worse than I thought we were. Um, and so when I came in, I started meeting with guys and talking with them and um, trying to get a feel for what the culture was like and uh, what the relationships were like. And um, it became really evident uh, very quickly that there were two, um, two groups and a massive divide between, the, uh, between those two groups. So on one side, there was a skill group that had kind of become friends, and that's like the receivers, the running backs, tight ends, quarterbacks. Um, and on the other side, there was the offensive line, and they had kind of unified themselves. Um, and there was a ton of animosity and a little bit of hatred uh, towards each other. So the offensive line group, um, by nature, those guys are, as they're growing up, they're you know, bigger kids, a little bit more heavy set, um, not, very, not amazing athletes. You're probably not going to pick them first for anything in gym class. Um, and so with that comes sometimes some self-esteem issues. Um, but when they get to college uh, and they get unified because there's a whole bunch of them all together and they realize their size and their strength is a gift in football, um, they kind of create a group um, in, and of them, in, in themselves. The receivers and the, the running backs in that group over there, I mean, those are the superstar athletes, the, the best athlete on every team as they were growing up um, and things like that. And so um, with all those accolades in that skill group comes a little bit of arrogance or pride sometimes. And so you've got these two groups um, kind of competing against each other. Um, and, and really, as I had more conversations, I found out that they really blamed each other for the poor performance of the offense instead of taking ownership of it. So the receivers and the running backs, those guys all blamed the offensive line. The offensive line all blamed them. And so we're, you know, we're in there for a couple months. We're trying to cast this vision of culture or cast this vision of family and like trying to push that forward. Um, and things were going okay. Um, and then around came intramural basketball season. Um, and uh, so one day I walk in the office and this coach kind of peeks his head in my office and goes, hey, did you hear what happened last night? And uh, he had that look on his face like, hey, I'm about to give you some, some pretty bad news. And uh, so I found out the night before uh, the offensive line had created a basketball team for intramural basketball. And they're, you know, they want to win, but at the same time, they're not really interested in winning the championship. It's just a whole bunch of guys out playing with their buddies, goofing around, playing a little bit of basketball. And then the skill group had also created a basketball team, which they were very intent on winning the intramural championship and showing everybody on campus that they were the absolute best basketball players. And I found out they had played each other the night before. So if you could take 
two years of pent-up frustration uh, about getting beat down in football, um, and you're the school group, and you can take it out in that basketball game on the offensive line and just pound them to death. Um, that's basically what the basketball game turned into. So it's a whole bunch of like really good basketball players playing a whole bunch of slow offensive linemen and just trying to pound the mess out of them um, and make them feel really, really bad because they blame them for all the losses in football. So um, as you can imagine, you put a whole bunch of football players out on a basketball court and say, hey, play basketball. The game got extremely physical. Um, it was really, really lopsided. And uh, by the end of it, there was a whole bunch of trash talking and stuff like that. And two guys got in a pretty big fight at the end of it. Um, so we call them in that day, um, those two guys. And uh, really, I mean, it came down to kind of what I had thought. It was uh, a bunch of guys that had a really skewed view of what unity in a family or unity in a team looked like because it was they were close with their friends but they did not have unity within the entire offense. Um, and they were like, well, I'm good with my boys, but I don't really like everybody else. And not that you have to be best friends, but there has to be unity at some level uh, within the entire offense. And so that's where you know one of the big um, walls in that divide stood uh, between those guys. And I, I kind of found out that was actually one of the first conversations they had ever had together in like two years. Um, so it was a bad culture. Um, and so we had that conversation. It went really, really well. I think guys, they, they both kind of understood where things were at. Um, and at the end of it, they kind of looked at me like, okay, well, well, now what? And so my initial reaction was, man, I want to make them like run a whole bunch of gasters for doing something dumb like fighting each other. Um, but I instead, uh, I gave them a list of, or a, a paper full of 150 get to know you questions. Um, <laughs> which, when I handed it to them, they both looked at me like, Coach, you are crazy. There's no way I'm doing it with this guy. I'd rather run like 50 gassers right now. Um, but instead, they got in and, um, you know, they took it with them and they came back a couple days later and they gave me the sheets and they were totally filled out. Um, and I could tell that they had actually genuinely spent a lot of time on it um, and gotten to know each other um, a lot better. And I know that... Um, Knowing often leads to loving, um, and when those guys stepped in and they took an opportunity to actually get to know each other a little bit better, um, some walls got taken down, and I didn't realize it in that moment, but that was one of the defining moments in the culture shift in our offense, um, because two of the guys that were kind of like some of the alpha males, like the leaders in our offense, they both said, okay, I am going to care about this offense and this idea of family, and I'm going to dive in. Um, and be vulnerable uh, to a deeper level, and I'm going to put all my desires and my selfishness and pride and all that stuff aside. Um, and that was one of the, the moments that really shifted the offense um, relationally and, and culture-wise, which if you want change in football and you want to be better at football, you have to figure out those two pieces first. Um, so eventually the football piece um, and us getting better at that uh, came along with it. That's awesome. Uh, so what's the goal of football teams that the goal of football yeah. teams? Why do you play football? Um, I believe uh, we play football. I mean, I want to foster a program where guys love each other and they have a great brotherhood and they, they create a family. But at the end of the day, you need to win football games. Yeah, you need to win. If Absolutely. I want to keep my job, I have to win football games. The AD says you need to win football games. We have to. Yeah. Uh, and so what was your record the year before you came in with that bad culture? Uh, they were 3-8. and 3-8. And, and what was your uh, record last year after three years after this event? 
we went nine and two this last fall, and the two losses we had were to the two teams that played in the national championship. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks so much. Give Andrew a big hand for coming out today. The uh, reason that I, I wanted Andrew to be able to come and to share that story was because, like any organization, there's always a mission that you have. For him, his mission is to win football games. I know it's deeper than that, like you were explaining, but the, the end of the day, what the AD cares about is that you need to win games. And uh, in the church, we have a mission as well. We're not different. I mean, we don't just get together to have fun because there's no brunches that are available on Sunday morning. Uh, we come to church because we are a people who have been given a mission, and our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. What Andrew found out about his team was that they were unable to fulfill their mission because of divisions that existed inside of them. Without unity, they were unable to accomplish their purpose for even existing. And the same thing happens a lot in the churches. I think that we find ourselves as the church in the Western world, specifically the church in America, is that we aren't a church that is united. We are a church that has become very divided. Instead of going out and making disciples of Jesus Christ, we heard, go make disciples, and we started making disciples of ourselves. Like, I want to make people who look like me, who talk like me, who vote like me, who think like me, have the same interest as me, have the same idea for taxes as I have. And what we do is we start, in the name of Jesus, trying to make it so that other people follow along with every thought and every preference that we have. And instead of being united around the cause of making disciples of Jesus Christ, we actually become divided over who's going to be a disciple of who. And so what we need to understand and what Andrew was able to figure out for his team is that there has to be a way that we come into unity so that we can accomplish what Jesus has called us to. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25. He says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Jesus is saying is that if there isn't unity, if there's opposition that's existing inside of an organization, a house, a nation, whatever it might be, that it's not even, it won't be able to accomplish its mission, but even worse than that, it won't even be able to continue to exist. It's going to go into a state of ruin. And I think that really accurately describes the state of the American church, is that we've become a church that is incredibly divided, uh, going all the way back to the beginning of our history, uh, and we haven't done a good job of walking into reconciliation and walking into unity around the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus knew this about us. He knew that the natural inclination of every human heart, not just the American heart, but every human heart, we're not bent to loving people who are different from us. We're not bent towards being united with people who think differently than we think, even though that's the call that he has for us. And so we have to learn how it is that Jesus is able to take us from that place of being naturally divided against each other and moving us into the place of unity as the body of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus says in John 17, 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. The world will know that you sent me and have loved me uh, even as you have loved them." 
So what Jesus is saying, and this is, he's doing a prayer out loud, and when Jesus is praying out loud for everybody else to hear, you know he's kind of doing some teaching as well as he's praying out loud for your benefit because there's something you need to understand about his prayer. And what he's doing is he's praying for our unity because it's impossible for us to accomplish the mission that he's given us if there isn't a unity that exists between us. And so this is the way that Jesus does this. He says that if you guys are walking in unity, that people who don't believe in me will believe in me. They will see the unity that you have. They will see the love that you have for each other. And it won't be because of what you preached. It won't be because of what you've done. But they're just going to look at the unity that they have, and they will believe in Jesus because of that. It will be one of the proofs of the power of God and the proof of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives when we walk in unity with each other. So this is how Jesus does it, because, uh, again, this isn't something that comes natural to us. We have to, to figure out and allow the Holy Spirit to do a work inside of us and to follow after the Jesus way, because what Jesus did was he took people who were very different, and he united them into, together into one team, and this group of people made more disciples than many, maybe any other group of people has made in the history of the world. And this is how Jesus starts out in his process of making disciples and building unity. Luke 4, 16 through 21 uh, it says that when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boy had home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all eyes in the synagogue looked at them intently. Then he began to speak to them and said, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. What Jesus is saying is that uh, he has brought about the fulfillment of this prophecy that was made hundreds of years ago. And what we see about Jesus and the way that he works in our hearts is that first and foremost, Jesus restores you. That every single one of us was born with the effects of sin playing out on our hearts and on our soul, on our mind, and everything that we do, we've been influenced, we've been infected and bent by sin, and so that we're not even able to follow after Jesus, we're not able to have unity with each other. It's not what's possible for us, but what happens is Jesus says that I came here as the Savior, as God who's come in human flesh to you, and I'm going to heal you. Um, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to proclaim liberty to those who are living as captives. I'm going to bring freedom to those who are slaves. Like all of the brokenness, I love he says, I'm going to take the broken pieces of your heart and I'm going to mend them back together. What Jesus is saying is that whatever the issue is that you're facing right now, whatever the brokenness that's in you is, uh, however sin is playing out in your life and keeping you from being able to follow after Jesus and follow after him in a way that leads you to have unity with other people, like he came to fix that in you. He came to restore you. Whatever that problem is that you're facing right now that separated you from God and that has separated you from other people, Jesus has come with power, with the anointing of God over him so that he can come and restore you back to the place that you were always created to be, to restore you to relationship with God, to restore your heart, to make it so that you don't have to live uh, just being constantly following after your sinful desires. He came to restore your mind so that you're not thinking the way that your culture does because cultures come and go and cultures change over time and every culture is wrong on a whole lot of stuff. So what Jesus does is he comes and he's restoring our minds so that we can think the way that God thinks, 
so that we learn to take his truth that he's revealed to us and to make it our truth. We don't have to live the way our culture and our society around us lives and thinks, but we're able to know what God's truth is and be able to live that out and to live in the blessing that comes from living according to God's truth. He says, hey, are you living oppressed right now by sin or by other people? I have come so that I can set you free from that. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to lead you into the fullness of what it was that you were always created for. We were born jacked up, life jacked us up some more, but Jesus came and he restores us back to the way that we were always created to do, what we were created to be. So he goes around and he begins to preach this message and he's preaching that and people start following him and he begins to restore the people that are following after him. And then what it does is after he gets some people around him that he's worked restoration in, and that's the first part. If you want to follow after Jesus, it's going to take him doing some restoration inside of your heart and your mind before you're able to do the next step. Because the next thing that Jesus does with people that he's restored is he actually forms a team with them. Luke 6, 12 through 16 says this. One of those days, Jesus went to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles, Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Not a lot of Alphaeus is out there anymore, if any of you are pregnant, just keep that one in mind. Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So this is what Jesus is doing, is when you look through that list of names, uh, what he's actually doing in them as he's building this team is he's actually, he's reorienting people. After Jesus restores you, he begins to reorient you in the way that you're living, in the way that you're thinking and what you're doing. Now, every one of us, we're living our lives right now oriented around the greatest cause that we have in our life. Whatever your greatest cause is in life is going to shape the way that you spend your time, your money, your thought process, the relationships that you have with other people, your dreams, your goals, your hopes, your desires, what you're willing to endure, what you're willing to sacrifice, how you're going to be able to persevere through things. Every single one of us right now has the greatest cause in our life that is dictating the way that our life is going in every area of our life. Uh, and if you're curious about what the greatest cause is in your life, uh, the way that you can figure it out, I could tell you right now what the greatest cause in your life is. If you showed me your credit card statement, I can see where your money's going. Have you ever noticed we don't spend money on things we don't care about? I was thinking about that. Is that really true? Because I spend a lot of money on diapers right now. And I'm not, like, passionate about diapers. But one of the great causes in my life is not cleaning up that stuff without a diaper. So I guess it is a priority in my life. But I can tell you, based, if you looked at where I spend my money, you could see the things that are the great causes in my life. Another thing you could do is uh, look at your social media accounts. What are you posting about? What are you talking about? The conversations that you're having with your friends. Uh, what are the words that are coming out of your mouth? Because those will show other people what your great causes are in your life. And here's what causes will do in us. Is causes unite us, but they also divide us. Your greatest cause will be the thing that unifies you the most with other people, but your greatest cause will also be the thing that causes the deepest divisions amongst yourself and other people. Right now, if, if you love the University of Michigan, I don't know if you've ever been wearing a shirt, any, any sports team, if you're at an airport and you're wearing your gear, like, there'll be some stranger who you don't know that'll come up like, go blue. Yeah, 
Like, I have a new best friend at this airport that I've never met. And there's this instant unity that exists between you and them because there's a common cause that you're sharing. They might be a terrible person. You have absolutely no idea. They might have robbed you blind had they not seen that you were sporting that Block M. But because there's a common cause, now there's unity that exists between you because of that cause. Now what happens, and this is always the Ohio State fans, like, you know, we Michigan fans, we never do this, but they'll see you wearing that and they'll start talking about how you haven't won a national championship in the era of color television, and they'll tell you how terrible you are and that Harbaugh's overrated, and what happens, you have this instant animosity towards them. You're like, I hate that whole stupid state. Like, I hate Ohio. I hate every person that's gone to that terrible university. I don't even know why. Like, because even though you don't know anything about them, they might be the best person on the face of this earth who would have been your best friend forever, and you have so many things in common, but there's this one cause that now divides you. Politics does this to us like crazy. When we become primarily, like, the greatest cause in our life is politics, and that's a part of... Guys, we were founded on this idea of hating people because of politics. Like, that's how our country came into being, was that we didn't want to serve that stuffy old King George anymore, and we thought that we had a better way to govern ourselves, and so, like, we kill a whole bunch of people to win our freedom so that King George doesn't control us anymore. But that's a whole other sermon. But anyway... <laughs> What it shows is like going back to our founding, we were all about politics. And it came back to dividing ourselves over politics because it became the greatest cause for us. So like if you're a Republican, like you might know other people, like yeah, I don't know anything about you, but hey, you're a Republican, like you're my best friend now. We're united against all those Democrats, like they don't know anything. Or if you're a Democrat, you're automatically united with everybody else who's on your side of the aisle and you hate all of the Republicans. Why? Because it has become your greatest cause. Have any of you lost a friend because of politics? Like, if I had more hands, I would raise them. Because it's become something that's so important to us, and it's become such a great cause in our life, that it's united us with people who think like us, but it's completely divided us and stirred up hatred against people who just disagree with us on the way that our country is best governed. Our greatest cause in our life is going to unite us with people, and our greatest cause is also going to divide us against other people. And this is what we saw in that whole list of names that Jesus gave us there. There's a couple of things. You notice it said Simon the Zealot, and then there's also a guy named Matthew. The two people that have been united, that have been reoriented in the way that they think and the way that they're living their life around the cause of Jesus Christ. But they weren't always like this. Simon the Zealot, his greatest cause was an armed revolution to overthrow the Roman occupation of his homeland. The zealots, that's what they did. They hung out in the mountains and in the hills, and they plotted, and they would come down, excuse me, and they would try to, to take out small garrisons. Um, they would try to find, <coughs> excuse me, I was supposed to mute myself before I coughed, but a little slow on that. And they would, they would do these terrorist attacks to try to kill as many Romans or people that were serving and working for the Romans as is possible as a way to force the Romans to say, the cost is too high for us, we're just going to give the land back and we're going to just withdraw from it. And then the Hebrew people would have their freedom once again. Now, the other guy that's in this ragtag uh, bunch of people that Jesus has gathered together is Matthew. Matthew wasn't always called Matthew, he was Levi. And a lot of people in the ancient world, you had your Hebrew name, and then you also had your Greek name. If a major event changed, uh, happened in your life, a lot of times you would change your name to reflect the new life that you were living. So we see Levi earlier, and what Levi's doing is he's sitting at a tax booth. 
Levi meant that he was from the tribe of Levi. He was supposed to be someone that was living as the priest who was serving God, uh, who was fighting for his people and standing up for truth. But instead, what Levi did was he was working for the corrupt Roman government who was occupying his land and his people and inhibiting their worship. And not just that, but the tax collectors would skim off the top. They would demand more from you than what they really needed. That's the way they made money, was they had to collect X amount from you for the Romans, who were the evil occupiers, and then they'd also extort you and take more from you, and that's how they became rich. So you have this guy that was supposed to be a priest who's instead ripping off his own people serving the Roman government. Levi was the type of person that uh, Simon hated. He was the type of person that it wasn't uncommon for the zealots to come in and to actually kill the people who were working as tax collectors. But Levi's greatest cause was making money for himself, and it didn't matter what the cost was or who he had to sell out to do that. So you have someone who's working for the Roman government, and you have someone who was trying to kill everybody who was working for the Roman government. Those were the two greatest causes in their life, and now they're following after Jesus. A miracle took place. And what happened was when Jesus restored them, when he came in and there was brokenness that was in Levi that led him to the place of where he was pursuing this greatest cause in his life and where he had walked away from the call of God on him and he was doing all of these other things, there was brokenness inside of Simon that led him to try to go and to kill people who were against what he believed in. There's extreme brokenness that existed in both of them, just like exists in every single one of us. And when Jesus came and he restored them, it also reoriented the way that they think. No longer was the greatest cause that they used to have the greatest cause in their life. Now the greatest cause in their life was following after Jesus. Now the greatest cause in their life was making disciples of Jesus Christ. And when that became their greatest cause, every lesser cause that they had was able to be put aside. Because the greatest cause in your life is what unites and divides you, not the lesser causes. I'm sure there was still some difference in politics that they might have had. You see, when we, when we become Christians, it doesn't mean that we're all going to vote the same. It doesn't mean that we're all going to think the same. It doesn't mean that we're all going to talk the same. It doesn't mean that we're all going to go through the same experiences that we have. It doesn't mean that we're going to agree on the best form of self-government. It doesn't mean that we're going to agree on the best way that we should be providing health care for people or our tax plans or foreign policy. It doesn't mean that we are going to just become in conformity with each other on all of our thoughts. It means that all of these other causes get knocked down a little bit lower, and the cause of Jesus Christ gets elevated in us. And now because of that, I'm able to say that you're my brother and you're my sister. We might disagree on a whole lot of things, but you know what? Those things are lesser causes. I'm not saying don't have opinions. I'm not saying not to be informed. Go out there, read, be involved in what it is that's happening in our nation. I believe that God is, is raising up people and positioning them in areas of influence because when we have godly people in the political process, there's blessing that comes to the process and to the whole nation, to those who are just and unjust alike. We need to be involved in it, but our involvement in politics should never lead us to the place where we're divided amongst ourselves. We should be able to have someone that's running uh, for the mayor of our city, who's Republican and an independent, because you've got to have one of them every here and there, and someone that's a Democrat, and they should all be able to sit in the front row together, loving each other and hugging each other and high-fiving, because even though they might be running against each other because they have different ideas for how we should run things, 
and that's perfectly great. We're all wrong. Uh, that's just the way it is. We're all right in some area, and we're all wrong in a lot of areas. If we knew where we were wrong, we would obviously change our minds so we could be right in that. But the greatest cause that we have isn't advancing our agendas. Our greatest cause isn't advancing the cause of the University of Michigan over the filthy Buckeyes. Our greatest cause isn't any of those things. The greatest cause that we have is the cause of Jesus Christ. And that unites us. That makes it so people who are very, very different can come together as one. You know why the church is so the same everywhere you go? There's white churches, black churches, Asian churches, Republican churches, Democrat churches. All that. Like, we're really good at dividing ourselves up is because really we love people who are like us. And we're more united around other things than we are around the cause of Jesus Christ. You know, reconciliation really is going to come when we start to have the unity and the love for each other that's sacrificial for each other, a love where we're able to confess our wrongs and our sins against each other and to elevate the needs of other people above our own and then put the cause of Jesus Christ first and foremost in our life. We don't have to agree on a lot of stuff, but we better agree on the cause of Jesus Christ. And here's what I'd say. This is something that stirs inside of every one of our hearts. Uh, like every election season, it gets hard to love other people. Uh, every time we play Ohio State, it gets hard to love other people. Every time, like, there's just thing after thing after thing that comes. And what we need to do is allow Jesus to continue to restore us. And if you're not at the place of where you're able to love people who are different from you so Jesus can build this big, beautiful, diverse family that he's called us to be, then we need to go back to step one and say, Jesus, I need you to continue to restore my heart because I'm not at the place where I'm able to be united with my brothers and sisters in Christ around the greatest cause, which is following after you and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. If we can't do that and there'll be seasons of your life where maybe it gets hard, go back to step one. Jesus, I need you to work some restoration in me. God, forgive me. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm repenting of elevating other causes above the cause of Christ Jesus so that we can be united in going after each other. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to say, hey, we have very different views. I think that Jesus is the only way to God. I think that there are many ways to God, and that's great. Let's just be united. No, like, that's not what I'm saying. Like, Jesus has revealed truth to us, and we have to be united together around the truth. This isn't some kind of like wishy-washy hippies form a drum circle, smoke weed, and let's just all get along. <laughs> what I'm saying is that if you have bent the knee to King Jesus, and you're following after the life that God has revealed to us through Scripture, that we can be united around all of the other stuff instead. And then here's what Jesus does after he forms the team, is that Jesus re-engages you. He re-engages you in two things. One is the mission. You weren't born in the mission that he created you for. You weren't born saying, my life is to follow Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. You were born doing other things, but Jesus re-engages you in that mission, in that cause that you were created for. That's why the last thing he says before he ascends into heaven is to go and to make disciples of all the nations. That's what he's called us to. That's why we're still here. It's because Jesus wants a bigger family. He wants more daughters. He wants more sons. He wants us to have more brothers and sisters from every nation, from every tribe, and from every tongue. That's why we're still here. That's why Jesus hasn't returned. 
is because he still is wanting more people to come in. He still has a heart for every single person on the face of this earth. He laid his life down for them. He paid everything that needed to be paid. He sacrificed as much as you can sacrifice so that others could receive the new life that he's made available to them through the forgiveness of their sins on the cross. Jesus is passionate about reaching the lost. That's what he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And this is what Jesus says, too, is that he's made us partners in this ministry of reconciliation. That it's not just Jesus going out there and doing it himself, that he's now made us partners in this ministry of seeking out and seeing salvation come to the lost, seeing reconciliation come between people who are separated through sin and their Father who's in heaven. That Jesus has called us and he's created us for this very purpose. And he's reengaging us in that. Go and make disciples. That's the most important thing in your life. You need to know me, you need to live as a disciple, and then you need to go and you need to make more disciples. That's what we have to be like the heartbeat of our life and the heartbeat of our church. But what happens is a lot of times you go out there and you try to make disciples. You're like, okay, I'm going to make disciples of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray. And then I'm, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to try to tell people about Jesus. And I'm going to try to disciple people and help them understand Scripture and doing all of these things. But what happens a lot of times is we just get frustrated over and over again because we're trying to make disciples. We know Jesus called us to make disciples. He says, I've given you the Holy Spirit so that you can now have the power to make disciples. But here I am. I'm trying to make disciples. I'm trying to engage in the mission of Jesus. But time and time again, I just keep bumping my head. I just keep failing over and over again. And the reason why is because so many times we're trying to do this on our own. It's like, it's me and Jesus. It's all I need. I'm just going to go out there. I'm going to pray for the lost. I'm going to disciple people and tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to disciple. I'm going to make disciples. And if you're trying to do that, you're filled with passion and vigor and faith for it. And then you try a couple times and it fails. And after years, you're still failing at doing it. And you're like, like Jesus, like, what's wrong? Why am I not able to do the thing that you clearly called me to do and have empowered me to be able to do? And it's because there's one other thing that Jesus has reengaged us in that so many times we're missing out on. And that's that he's reengaged us in community. This is what Jesus did. He didn't send his disciples out to make disciples on their own. He sent them out in groups. He says he sends them out in twos. He never sent them out alone. He sent them out in community. Jesus, when he's going around proclaiming the gospel, when he's going around healing the sick and teaching about the culture of the kingdom of God, he's not doing it on his own. There's a group of 12 people. He's got a small group. There's a group of 120. That's the bigger group. It's like his little church that's, that's traveling around with him. Jesus did ministry. He made disciples in the context of community. We're called to make disciples in the context of community, not on our own. This is what it says. You want to see what is like so beautiful about the early church? It says in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, this is just after the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus, uh, and this is what they do immediately after that. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Why were they able to make disciples? Because they were re-engaged in the mission, and they were re-engaged in the community 
that they were created to exist in. When we go out there and we're praying on our own, we're reading our Bible on our own, we're eating on our own, we're telling people about Jesus on our own, we're trying to disciple other people on our own, you're going to quit. You're going to get frustrated because you're not going to see fruit in that because that's not the way that Jesus created you to do it. It'd be like if Andrew's team, he tells his quarterback, all right, go out there, win us the game. I'm sending you out. No O-line, no tight ends, no running backs, no receivers. It's just going to be you on the field. Hike the ball to yourself. And you score for us. If that quarterback doesn't die on that one play, he's going to quit. He will never go on that field again is he'll realize it's impossible. So many of us have given up on the call of God in our life because we've been trying to do it on our own and we've discovered it's impossible. You can decide to follow Jesus all on your own. Jesus speaks to your heart. He calls you individually to follow after him. But he doesn't call you individually to live. Discipleship exists in community. We need each other. It's the way God made us to be. Well, that's tough because our culture right now is very individualistic. We don't like a lot of people. We don't know our neighbors. A lot of us live very far from our family and from where we're born and from our friends. So naturally, we've just kind of said, you know what, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. I'm just going to kind of live my life on my own and not be bothered by other people. And, you know, honestly, community is messy. It's difficult. People are going to offend you. People are going to wrong you. Be encouraged. Like, that's just the way it is. But the good thing is, you know that going into it, other people are going to offend you and wrong you and disagree with you, and you're going to offend other people and wrong them and disagree with them. And as long as we all understand that, there can be grace for each other because Jesus has forgiven us of so much and because Jesus has filled us with the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to supernaturally forgive and to have grace for one another. And we're united around a cause that's greater than any of the other things that might divide us. But if we want to make disciples, it's going to happen together. It's going to happen when we start studying scriptures, not on our own, but together. It's going to happen when we start worshiping Jesus, not just on our own, but together. It's going to happen when we're eating meals, not just on our own, but when we're getting together and we're eating meals. It's going to happen when we're seeking after Jesus together. It's going to happen when, have you ever tried to meet everybody's need or even your own friend's needs? Have you turned, like, you don't have enough resources to do that? It doesn't say that the Apostle Peter was meeting everybody's needs. It says that they together were meeting each other's needs that they had. That's the way the church works. That's the way the Christian community is supposed to work. We can't do it on our own. We, the, the church in America, we have failed in God's call to make disciples. Like, we're, get, we're getting run off the field right now. We're getting mercied out there. But it doesn't have to be that way. In the last hundred years, what God has done in Africa and in South America is miraculous. You know, the, the center of the Christian world has shifted from the Western world actually to Africa and to South America. The number one continent with the most Christians on the face of this earth is Africa. Number two is South America. Like, we're not where it's at anymore. 
We have a whole lot that we need to be learning from our brothers and our sisters in Africa and in South America because they're doing it. We can learn, we need to go to the place where we sit at their feet for a little bit and say, show us why we're so stupid. <laughs> show us why we're failing so miserably at this. And Jesus is doing something miraculous there and it's in the context of community. And what Jesus is doing in the Southern Hemisphere, he can do in the Northern Hemisphere. But we gotta stop being so divided. We've got to unite around the greatest cause that this world has ever known, and that's the cause of Jesus Christ. We have to be united, and we have to take this call to go and to make disciples and to do it together, not as individuals anymore, not as those who are staying outside a community because it's messy, it's rough. If you don't see a need for it, you have a need for it, for your own health, for your own discipleship, and for you to be able to make other disciples you have to engage in community. You have to be a part of your church family. That's why we're pushing groups so much this year. Honestly, like I've been open about this. We were doing a lot of things really well as a church, but we were stinking at community. And so we said, this year we're going after it. We're going to pray, we're going to worship, and we're going to learn to love each other, and we're going to learn to, to do this life, this following after Jesus together in the context of community because it's the only way that we can do it. And here's what happens if we don't do it. Right now, 80% of the kids who grow up in the church are walking away from their faith. It's not that we aren't reaching the lost around us, it's that we're losing our own family. It's that there's an eternal destiny that every one of us goes to. I don't care what you think about taxes. Who cares if your tax plan wins or my tax plan wins? What's more important is that our sons and our daughters are walking away from Jesus. What's important is that our neighbors and the people in our city are far from Jesus right now and they're living in the bondage to sin and the brokenness that comes. If, when you get to know people, what you begin to understand is that when you peel back what you can see on the surface, is that there's a whole lot of hurt. There's a whole lot of brokenness inside of people, a whole lot of pain. And Jesus came to restore them. The price has already been paid. We have the answer. It's in Christ Jesus but if we're not united together in this, if we're not loving each other, if we're not living in a way that we're so united that the people who are living next to us look at us and say, oh my goodness, I'm, I believe in Jesus because of the unity that you have. Now we're never going to do this. We're never going to reverse this trend of the decline of the church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America and in the Western world in general. We have to unite. We need Jesus to restore us. We need Jesus to reorient the way that we're thinking. And we need Jesus to re-engage us in the mission and in the community and the family that he's called us to. Would you stand with me this morning? Jesus, would you search our hearts? Maybe you're here this morning and you need Jesus to do some restoration in your heart. The good news is, is that he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That today the power of Jesus is here to restore you. That today Jesus has the ability to mend the pieces of your broken heart. 
Today, Jesus is preaching liberty to all of those who are in bondage. Today, Jesus is preaching freedom to all of those who are oppressed. He's here today, and he's here to do a work inside of your heart because of his great love and because of his great power. If you're here today and you need some restoration in your heart, maybe it's that you need reconciliation with God, or maybe it's that you need him to do something inside of you to make his cause the greatest cause in your life, or, or to work unity inside of your heart. If that's you today, you need Jesus to do some restoration, just raise your hand. I've got my hand up because I need Jesus to do something inside of me. Yeah, that's just your sign of faith. Of God, I believe that you have the ability to do this. Come and do that in me. Yeah. Because he's here. He's a God of power. Jesus, over every hand that's raised, you know their need. Would you come and by your miraculous power, by the resurrection power, would you come and would you restore over every broken heart, Jesus, over every hopeless mind, Jesus, over every prodigal son or daughter who's coming home, Jesus, in every situation, would you come and do something miraculous in their hearts? Jesus, we receive by faith the thing that you're doing inside of us. And Jesus, I pray over Radiant Church that you would work a uniting in our hearts. Jesus, forgive us for elevating other causes above your cause. Jesus, forgive us for the way that we've divided ourselves from other people in our family, over race, over politics, over stupid things, Jesus. Forgive that, that hardness of our heart. Forgive the sin in our own heart that's caused us to divide ourselves from other people. Jesus, would you cause our hearts to be filled with love and affection for our brothers and our sisters? Jesus, would you allow us to see how much we truly need each other to follow after you and to make disciples? And Jesus, would you, would you mend our hearts together? Would you bind our hearts together with cords that can't be broken? Jesus, giving us supernatural grace and mercy for each other that will take us through any conflict that we might have, that will cover the differences, allow us to make allowances for differences between each other. Jesus and Radiant Church, would people, when they come in, would they believe in you, Jesus, because of the unity that we have? Jesus, we pray that in Radiant Church, in this family, that disciples would be added daily to us as we go after you and the mission that you've called us to daily, Jesus. And Jesus, we pray that in our generation, in our time, God, that you would reverse the trend. Jesus, we pray over our city that you would come and that you would do the miraculous. Jesus, for every person who's far from you, God, would you be revealing to them how good you are, how great your love and your affection is for them. Jesus, would you silence every lie that the enemy's been speaking over the people of our city. Jesus, would you help the people of our city to see how loved they are by you. God, would you give us the ability to demonstrate to the people of our city how loved they are by you, by the way that we love them and that we give ourselves up for them. Jesus, do the miracle of making a family here this morning and in our groups. Unite us together, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Amen. Well, I'm going to have my prayer partners come forward. They're going to be in the, in the front on the outsides here. If there's anything we can pray for you for, uh, please let us pray for you. It's not weird to have someone pray for you. That's the norm in the family of Jesus. It's kind of weird that so many times we're, like, we're scared to let other people pray for us. So uh, if there's anything that we can pray for you about, come, let us pray for you. Especially if you made a decision today to follow after Jesus, to recommit your heart to him. Uh, we just have a, a resource that we want to give you to help you in that journey. Um, or if you want to get together, grab a coffee, just start sharing what it is that Jesus is doing. We'd love to be able to encourage you, do stuff like that. So come talk to one of us. Or if you're a little bit timid to do that, you can text I decided to 97,000. Uh, it's a really easy way you can do that. And then we'll be able to get a hold of you and, uh, and mail you the resources and just check in on you and see how you're doing. If there's anything that we can help you do uh, as you acclimate into this family and start following after Jesus with us. So I decided 97,000. Uh, remember next week, 8.30 prayer, 9.30 first service, 11.15 second service, night of worship at 6.30, marriage exo conference, sign up. It's going to be incredible. Have a great day. Let us pray for you. And we'll see you next week. God bless.